Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 29. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you speak to us sometimes in parables. And, Lord, for these things, we must have your help. Indeed, Lord, for all of your word, we will not receive it as it is meant. We will not understand it apart from your illumination, great work of the Holy Spirit upon us. But so much more so when you speak in parables. We know that to the outside world, these things are opaque, But you give these things precisely that your own people who are granted spiritual understanding might hear them and understand. Therefore, we pray that you would open the eyes and the ears of all here present to receive these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we come now to this final section of Luke chapter 21. And as you know, this has been called the mini-apocalypse. Jesus has been speaking about what's going to happen in the end times. It's a favorite topic of some and a dreaded topic for others. Um, But we as God's people receive this as we do all of God's word. It is here for a purpose. It is here for a specific work in discipling and sanctifying us. And we receive it in faith. Now, as I say, he's been talking about what's going to happen in the years ahead, first uh, of the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem itself in AD 70, and then the destruction of the whole world at the end. And Jesus, as he is wrapping up this in these, these final verses, he is making the transition from these particular teachings, these particular prophecies, to the doctrine and to the practical application of these things. What, is, what truth can we gather from this? What difference does that make? And, and what should we do in response to hearing these things? That's what this is about. And the great doctrinal truth that he speaks of in the midst of all these things is the permanence of his word. Now, the world, the people around us tend to think that this world is what is most permanent they speak of the world itself with terms of great reverence and awe. And when they think of something that is permanent, of course, they can think of nothing more permanent than this earth itself. 
that it is precisely Jesus' point that all of these visible things will certainly pass away, some of them very, very soon. This very thing that they were looking at, this temple, and this looking at how wonderfully it was built, at what great cost and how great beauty. And Jesus says, well, some of you that are here right now, you're going to live to see its destruction and, and you along with it. And as with the temple, so with the entire world. These things, these visible things will certainly pass away. So those are not the permanent things, no, The thing that will remain is the thing that actually brought the world into existence, the whole universe into being, and that is the Word of God. If you go to a a factory or you go to anything that creates something, the thing that brings it into existence is also the thing that can bring it out of existence. Whatever furnace that was powerful enough to, to forge the steel that a car is made of is also powerful enough to melt it down into nothingness. And that furnace, in all likelihood, is going to outlast any of the cars, any of the items that it makes. Well, it is far, far more so with the Word of God. It brought this world into existence, and it will remain, although everything else, heaven and earth, pass away, and they shall do so. That is the great doctrinal truth, the permanence of God's Word. And the great practical application of all this eschatology, all this talk about the end times, and of even of that great doctrine, is to watch and pray. To the believer, you ought to pray that you might escape these things. That's what it's said. Indeed, to all people, you might escape these things. That's the prayer. And more particularly, I would say to the believers that we should all watch and pray throughout our sojourn here. As we walk around in a world around us that is condemned. You know, if we were in a house, it's not, it doesn't take too great of a, a flight of imagination to imagine that this, this community center would be a, a condemned building. But let's say that if we walked into this, into this building and there's a large red sign that said, this building is condemned. It is not fit for humans to dwell in it. Something might happen to you. We would be careful, wouldn't we? We'd watch our step because we might fall through. We'd, we'd watch overhead because something might fall on us. We would watch. Well, this, friends, this world is condemned. And the great practical application for us is that we should watch and pray throughout our sojourn in it. Well, the title of this sermon is that my words will never pass away. And there are three points. The fig tree, the world will pass, not my word. And three, watch and pray. The fig tree, the world will pass, not my word. Watch and pray. So first, the fig tree. Verse 29, then he spoke to them a parable. It's been a while since we've heard a parable. He spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they're already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. And the first question that will occur to some of us is whether this particular parable, this sign of the fig tree, stands for national Israel. Because, and, and particularly that the reality that Israel is now a nation again, became so in 1948, is a particular fulfillment of prophecy that gives us specific 
information. Well, I don't want to disappoint you, but my answer is maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, We know that the fig tree is certainly a type for Israel, and so it's very interesting that he chooses to say this at all rather than simply a tree. He says a fig tree, and that's interesting. But on the other hand, he does in fact go on to say, and all trees, which it seems if it were a specific reference to a single type of tree in order to point to Israel, then why then go on to say, and all other trees? So it is interesting but not absolutely certain. And I think that that's useful. I think that that's actually part of what the, the principle of what he's showing us. As I'm going to go on to say, as I've already said, the Lord gives us enough information so that we can see the passage of time and, and incur, encourages us to continue to watch and pray, but not enough so that we know for certain when the end is going to be. But what is clear here in this parable, what we know for certain in this parable, is he's pointing to a very basic natural principle of the way the world works. We know that summer is coming when we see buds on trees. It's really, really true. Whether in the Middle East or here in Northern Europe, when you see those buds on trees, you know that summer is near. Look, here, here we are. And as we're coming towards winter and we see the trees have A, that their leaves have turned yellow and or red, and B, that they're now missing leaves. They're not completely without leaves, but they're missing it. And we can infer plus or minus a month exactly what time of year it is. If we were better than that, if we were more seasoned and practiced, we could probably guess within a week as to what time it is as we carefully observe uh, the signs of the trees around us. Well, friends, that's the principle that he's giving to us, that there are manifestations of the passage of time in nature, and we are not wrong to infer that the next event in this is coming up. What comes up for us is winter. But when we see those blossoms on the tree, then we know the next thing that's coming in this sequence of events is summer, and we won't be wrong. We've never been wrong when we've made that assumption in the past, and Jesus is saying, so it's true. When you see these things come to pass, of which I've just been describing, then you know that summer, in this case, the end, is near. Now, verse 31. So you also, when you see these things happen, know that the kingdom of God is near. So he is speaking now, not so much in particular of the events of A.D. 70, Although this is a milestone, this is a, a, this is a thing that has been fulfilled in order that we see the passage of time is happening. When you see all of these things, the things that I talked about last time happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Now let me say again, there is a tension here. Right? Let's just think of the, the, the three different possibilities and what they would do to us practically. What if... The Lord did not give us any information about the end times at all. And there, was, there were no indications whatsoever. What would that do? That, my friends, would discourage our watching. It would discourage it. Just as, I don't know if you've ever stood watch overnight. But it is a very helpful thing to see some passage of time. Certainly in terms of the coming dawn. And maybe of the, 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 the birds singing. But even of the passage of your watch, the time, 
It's very useful because it enables you to keep on watching because you know the time is passing and moving towards the end. It's useful to you. And if God didn't give us anything at all, I think it would be very discouraging. But what about on the other side of that, that, that dichotomy? Instead of no information, what if he gave us perfect and exact information that gave us the precise time, right from the beginning, right from the apostles' time, that he says, okay, you guys want to know the year. It's actually in the year 2051 on October the 2nd. What does that do? It means for 2,000 years of church history, no one needs to watch and pray because they know it's not going to happen then. Once again, it is deadly to the whole concept which Jesus is driving us forward to, which is to watch and pray, and that would not do. That is not a good idea. So the Lord doesn't grant those things. Instead, he gives us something in the middle, which I'm not going to define too particularly, but I'm going to give you the general idea, which is enough that you can see the passage of time and not enough that you know exactly when it's going to happen. And that, my friends, is what encourages watching. That very much encourages our watching. And that's what we're talking about here. An end state that God's people are looking forward to, to, to Christ's return, not overly troubled by the various events that, and natural disasters and wars as they come, but rather seeing the milestones, seeing prophecy fulfilled, and getting general indications that the time is coming a little bit closer, a little bit closer and causing them to watch all the more as they see these things happen. That's what he wants, and that's what this is designed to do. Now, he says in verse 32, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. And here again is the curiosity with the fig tree, something that I used to take a very, very close notice to, because again, that number 1948 what if that is the generation that we're talking about? That's a very, very interesting thing. That generation would not pass. Well, we know that this is certainly the case for those that he was speaking. Sometime in the 30s, he was speaking to them and said, this generation will not pass until these things physically that I'm speaking of happen. And that's exactly what was the case. And so the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed and some that were there at that time were certainly alive to see it. But let me say, whether the fig tree, again, I don't think that we can draw certain inferences from it. Whether that's the case or not, this we know, that spiritually this is a case for the church. We who are the seed of Christ, we are the seed of Christ, we are covenantally attached to him, all of God's people are. And we who have heard these things from him, he speaks to us even today in his word and spirit. He's speaking to us now. He speaks to us and he says, and we who have heard these things from him will not pass away from the earth before all these things are fulfilled. Reminder, by the way, that Christ says he's going to build his church. He's going to, and it's not going to fail. The, the church is not going to be destroyed. No matter what kind of persecution happens, no matter what fury of the world and Satan against us, the generation of the church of God's people will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. It's very true. Well, that's the parable of the fig tree. Secondly, let's now think more about this point, that the world will pass. 
but not my word. Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. This is the contrast that he gives to us, that the world will pass away. It's precisely the point of the whole passage. And let me say, this is one of the many problems of current thinking of the more progressive type that talks about the gradual and cultural transformation of this world. And it's a rejection of the prophecies that this world will come to a definite end and there will be a new creation. And and rather the idea that slowly but slowly we'll make this world to be a better place. What's the problem with that? Many problems. But one is precisely that this contrast falls to the ground. He says this world will pass away. And if we don't believe that, then we don't believe the thing that he's establishing on the other hand, which is that his word will remain forever. That's the point of what he's saying. But no, we don't need to guess about this, friends. Second Peter 3.10 and following makes it very, very clear indeed. Where it says, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. That doesn't sound very parabolic and symbolic here. It seems pretty, pretty straightforward. And we always, so if, if there's any, if we're wondering about whether this is really clear and straightforward, we go to a clearer place. A clearer place is, is Second Peter, and it's talking about elements melting. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. All these things will be dissolved. The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Did you get it? Pretty simple. It's pretty clear what's going to happen. This world will not just carry on as it is. It will, in fact, be utterly destroyed. Now, it's not a big surprise. What happened to the first world? It was destroyed in water, completely. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Completely destroyed in fire, in brimstone. That's what is awaiting the entire world. In fact, the world that now is is being upheld by the word of God until the moment of its destruction. So we can be clear that the world is certainly going to pass away. And that's really, really important as we think about the doctrine here. Because, friends, if you think that the world is going to remain, you will be invested in this world more than you need to be. If you think that this world is permanent, then you would be justified in doing that. You would be justified in uh, embracing the cares of this world. Why? Because it remains. And your investment in this world therefore remains. And therefore you should be wrapped up into it completely. Because it's solid, it remains, and all of your works and all the things with respect to this world, that really counts and matters. But... But, well, look, it's like a bank. Take that illustration, right? If you think that the bank has endured for a couple centuries thus far, and it will certainly endure for another century, then you are justified in putting your life savings into the bank. But if you think that it's a fly-by-night little stand in the, the, the middle of, I don't know, in, on the roadside somewhere... It's made out of cardboard boxes that was there. It showed up yesterday. How justified, and, and you know that it's not going to be around next year. How, how justified would anybody be to come with their life savings and invest in that? You'd say that's foolishness. 
You need to find something that's going to endure because this is not going to endure. It's going to pass away soon enough and you're foolish to throw all your investment into it. That's the Lord's point. The illusion is that this world is solid and permanent, but that's not the reality. It's the roadside bank made of cardboard. On the other hand, his words will last. The word is eternal. The one thing that will remain, heaven and earth, will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. The thing that, that endures beyond the destruction of all things visible is the word of God, the very thing that brought it into being in the first place. Now we see that in the fulfillment of prophecy. That's why Jesus is speaking of these things. He is constantly uh, directing our attention to how the word of God must be fulfilled. Sometimes uh, when no other reason is given, uh, for instance, uh, for his, his baptism in the Jordan or things like that, no, he just says this is, this is the word of God. It must be fulfilled. Uh, of course, all the, the circumstances and the minute details of his death, his, his crucifixion, his, his resurrection, all those things are in fulfillment of prophecy. It must happen. And so he gives us this prophecy to remind us that the word of God will certainly be fulfilled. But beyond that, it is the solidity of God's promises generally. The world makes promises to us. Promises it can't keep because it's not going to be here forever. When God makes promises to us, we know these things will be kept because the word itself is eternal. Jesus is the word of God. He's the eternal word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the one who's speaking. And he says, my word will not pass away. It's based on the... Its, its point is related to the fulfillment of prophecy. It's based on the solidity of God's promise. And that's, of course, also showing us and reminding and reiterating that the word that is given to us is perfect. You know, that wouldn't be true if his word were filled with flaws. You understand that? It reminds us of the, the inerrancy of Scripture. Don't ever think. If somebody says, you know, you don't really have to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture to be a Christian. Well, yes, you do. Right? Because if there's any flaw in what we have of the word of God, all of that means nothing. When he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not. Actually, his word already has passed away because it's, it's passed from memory. We have failed to be able to preserve the word of God that he's given to us as he's inspired the text of Holy Scripture. He, it's already failed. What else is going to fail if that much has failed? When he promises that he who believes in me will have everlasting life, probably that will fail too. No, he is able, you see, to preserve the whole world until its destruction. And he is more than able to preserve the text of his scripture. Heaven and earth are going to fall away, not this word, please. He gave it perfectly and he upholds it perfectly that we might have perfect confidence in it. The whole world will pass away, but not my word. More on that in the application. But thirdly, even before we get to the application section, there really is the application that Jesus himself is making here, which is watch and pray. That's our third point, watch and pray. Verse 34, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, 
drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell in the face of the whole earth. You know, there are things that will keep us from any focus on that which is to come. There are things that will keep us from watching and praying in particular. And those things are defined as carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. You know, that's a, great pro- that's a problem, isn't it? Why is it that, it is, that drunk driving is illegal? Why? Because those who are drunk aren't watching out. Okay? Just in, in, in the simplest kind of language, that's the issue. Okay? Uh, those who would otherwise be careful, looking ahead and judging distances carefully and, and uh, speeds and times and all the rest of it, and being cautious in, re- in relation to that which they're looking out for, uh, if they are drunk, those things are taken away and they act without due caution, without watching, and they go to destruction. They often bring others with him. That's why it's illegal. Well, likewise, those who are drunk um, will not be watching and praying with regard to the end of the world. That's why Satan wants people to be drunk and carousing precisely so that they won't be watching. Now, if Satan would be perfectly happy if everyone in this world were either permanently on alcohol or on some drugs, and frankly, that's starting to seem like it's coming to, to be. He's having his way with his population, with its sufficient income to buy these things. The drugs problem is getting worse and worse and worse. It's never been as bad as it is now, and even worse in America. The the heroin epidemic is reaching new heights, and it seems like that the moment is coming where virtually everyone is on some kind of, uh, of drug. Well, the point of that is, that those who are drunk or those who are high on some illegal drug, they're not going to watch and they're not going to pray. And the Lord is warning us against those things. Now, I understand fully that there are some, perhaps not the majority among us, that would struggle with temptations in this way. And the Lord has given you fair warning to say, these things seem like a good idea, but they will lead only to further problems. And that is the reality of that kind of escapism. But we would also say it's the cares of this world. Now, that's a kind of different category. Because let's say that there are those who are given to this kind of escapism and uh, drunkenness and drugs and so forth. On the other hand, you have the upstanding citizen uh, who is not like that, And the reason why they're not like that is because of their investment in this world. You understand how that goes? Unfortunately, in a non-Christian world, as as the Christian influences pass more and more from the scene, we pray the Lord would intervene. But as that happens, pretty much you'll have two different groups of people. You have the group that does not care and and needs to be kept on some sort of drug, you know, in order to entertain them in this, this, this constant drunken state. And on the other hand, you have those who are fulfilling the rules of society and working hard. But why? Why? Because of their investment in this world. And the world will reward them accordingly if they play by the rules. So because of their investment, they care about the world. 
their cares cause them to do the things that are, are, are not quite as bad. Well, that sounds good, and we'll take, we'll take that rather than the other, absolutely, and sometimes God uses those to restrain sin. But even those cares of the world keep you from watching and praying as to what is coming. Why? Because now it's not that your brain is, is foggy from substance. It's that your eyes are focused right down here in the things of this world. And you're not thinking, you neither care nor know of what is happening next spiritually. And, that, and you know what Jesus says? That day will come upon you like a thief in the night because you're not looking for it. You haven't been spiritually alive. You have not been looking at the horizon metaphorically. And therefore it comes upon you as a thief. The parallel passage in Mark thirteen thirty three says this, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Just in case you are wondering, you don't know. It is like a man going into a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, in the midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest suddenly, coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. That's just it. You know, there are two, there, you know, these things are, have not changed. Uh, there, we actually in the military do have problems with, with men on watch who are, who are drunk. That, that's a problem. Now, they're going, to get, they're going to get court-martialed if they're caught, but that is one problem. They're drunk. The other problem is that they're doing various work, even useful work, even lawful work, even military work on their computer there, at, rather than looking out at the horizon or on the radar screen doing their watch. And the enemy comes upon suddenly... And it's the same. Whether they're drunk or whether they're busy with their other matters, it doesn't matter because the day is going to come upon, the event will come upon them unaware. And it's just as deadly one way or another. And Jesus, for that reason, also counsels us. Just as much as he said, I don't want you to be drunk and carousing, he also says, I don't want you to be overly taken up with the affairs of this world because it will have this very same effect on you. Now he says, watch and pray. Isn't it interesting and sad? Soon enough, as we come to Gethsemane, and Jesus is speaking to him, they cannot walk with him. They cannot, they cannot receive the baptism of fire that he's about to receive. They can't be crucified with him. They can't be part of the atonement. But one thing that they could do is to pray, and that they cannot do. They're too weak. Matthew twenty six forty. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Well, the applications now in rapid fire. First of all, receive his word in faith. What is this whole section saying? He's telling you things that are going to happen, and he's saying for your own benefit you ought to believe them. Judgment is coming. There is a way of escape. And if you believe what Jesus says, you'll be saved. Is that a fair summary of what this chapter is about? 
Yes, it is. You know what else has a fair summary of the gospel? It's pretty simple. The word of God comes to you, a promise that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, actually, the word of God first comes and says, this is a city set for destruction. This building itself is condemned. And the city and the nation and the whole world along with it. And you do not know when that destruction is coming. And you yourself are condemned to destruction as a a sinner under the wrath of God. What can you do? There is a way of escape. Clinging to Christ in faith. He who died, he who rose again, you believe on him and you shall be saved. The word of God comes with this warning. The word of God comes with this promise. And all you have to do is to believe it, to receive it in faith, and you will be saved. Believe his word in faith. It's very simple. Secondly, for the sinner in particular, pray to escape that day. We didn't speak All that we could in that statement, pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. We could speak much more of this, but the application that is relevant to you, the unbeliever, the the sinner, the unrepentant sinner, is that you, this is your prayer, that you escape that day of wrath. And when it says that you may be counted worthy, don't think about it in the sense of your own merit. That's not maybe even the best translation of it. What it means is what is eligible. What makes you eligible to escape those things is your faith in Christ. And you say, well, if I could believe, then I would already believe. And you're right. That's why this prayer is relevant for you. Because faith is a gift of God. It comes through hearing, but it is a gift of God. And the Lord is pleased to answer such prayers. Pray indeed that you would be eligible to receive, eligible to escape the things that are coming as he gives you the gift of faith to believe. Pray to escape, sinner. Thirdly, God's people, you ought to know this word a lot better than we do. That's the thing, isn't it? Interesting. Jesus is telling us that his word will, will, will remain forever. How assiduous and how industrious can we be sometimes about the things of this world? Please do not imagine that I say this as if that does not affect me. It is unfortunately a universal problem among us that sometimes we know things of this world, the word of man, better than we know the word of God. But listen to what the people did in verse 37. Here's another thing we didn't really get to in the body of the sermon, but it's it's very useful in application. Verse 37, in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Friends, is that our desire? To hear the word of God, to hear Christ speaking to us? I hope it is. I hope it is. Some of us can remember when we were first believers, you couldn't keep us out of the house of God. Anytime there's a Bible study, anytime there's a meeting of any kind, we would be there because we wanted to hear this word. Friends, may a zeal, may a love of the word of God consume us. And may we desire greatly to hear it, greatly to memorize it, greatly to grow in our knowledge and understanding of the things of this truth. Know this word better. It's the only thing that's going to remain. You know that your investment of learning this word is eternal. 
Fourthly and finally, we've got to keep ourselves from distractions. Keep ourselves from distractions. Again, take heed to yourselves, all of you. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and cares of this life. And that's so true. Again, I understand some struggle with the drunkenness aspect. And this is your encouragement not to do that. Probably the majority of us struggle more with the cares of this life. Satan has a poison for us. He's got all kinds of poisons. And he knows just which one we're susceptible to. And we have to understand that what's going to happen is if we're distracted overly much with the cares of this life, that we, our hearts will be weighed down. How about that? What a thought. Our hearts weighed down. There's another picture along those lines of being weighed down. What happens if you all of a sudden fall into the, the ocean and you happen to be wearing all sorts of heavy clothing and equipment? What are you going to do if you're smart? Dump that, right? Take those things off. Get rid of it. If you're a diver, get rid of this weight belt that is keeping you down if you have some sort of emergency. Friends, that's what an overmuch care of this world is like. It weighs down your heart. Not only does it keep you from your eyes looking out and watching and praying in that way, expectantly waiting for the Lord to come, but your heart is weighed down. And the Lord doesn't want that for you. He wants us to be his joyful children. Can I tell you it's as hard as a parent when I see my precious children whom I love to be overly weighed down. I want them to be hardworking and diligent and joyfully going about the the things that they've been called to do. But when it comes to a point of their hearts being weighed down by it, it's not something I would desire as a parent at all. I don't want that. I want them to joyfully do the things that I've called them to do and to love me. Well, guess what? That's exactly what our Lord says to us. You're weighed down? The Lord said, I didn't want you to be weighed down. I didn't tell you to be weighed down. I warned you not to be weighed down. I've called you to a life of joy and thanksgiving. He loves us. He loves his children. And he wants us to be looking forward to him coming home. He doesn't want it to be like a father arriving home from a long absence and his children are too busy about their various things to even notice that he's arrived. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, how we pray, Lord, that you would indeed have mercy upon us, that your word would reach us as a sharp two-edged sword all the way through our ears and to our minds and to our hearts and our souls, And that, Lord, we would receive this word in faith. We would believe the warnings that this world is headed for destruction. And we would believe the good news that there is a way of escape through Christ. And, Lord, how we pray that we would receive also your rebuke to us. That we would not be weighed down either by drunkenness or by the cares of this world that would keep us from watching and praying. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be found, yes, eligible to to escape all the things that are coming on this world as we are steady in our walk, watching and praying as we go, knowing, Lord, that our redemption draws near. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.